Good morning. Good morning and welcome. Hello? Can you hear me? Come on. Am I there? There we go. Good morning and welcome to White Square Road. We're going to get started with a song. If you would stand and sing with us, we'll sing everybody else on in. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, we love you. Ferry Road. I'm glad y'all made it and hadn't washed away with all this beautiful liquid sunshine we've had. We are so glad that you have chosen to be here and especially uh, a lot of guests I've met this morning all the way from Oklahoma to Montana and everywhere in between in this great land that God has given us to live in. So you are, we are especially honored that you have chosen to be with us today, and hopefully you feel welcome. We do ask, as always, that you hang around a little bit. Let us get to know you a little bit. We do have a few uh, announcements that you can see up here. Uh, really want to call attention to that first one. Life Choices baby bottles are out here in the baskets, so please uh, take and, uh, and fill those up and bring them back, and if there's any more, fill two of them up. That, of course, is to, uh, to help support Life Choices uh, here in town, which is a fantastic organization. Uh, dads? for donuts uh, here in a couple of weeks as well uh, for Father's Day breakfast. Uh, and ladies, you will have a special class in here that's going to be fantastic uh, uh, during that time as well. Uh, if you uh, the, had our 5K for our mission trip this summer yesterday, if you want to buy a T-shirt, see the checkered flag table out there, or if, uh, you, decided, if you decided, well, I'm not going to run it because of the weather, your packet of stuff is out there too that you uh, registered for, so you can pick that up uh, as well. Thank you so much for being here at this time. I would like to ask that our elders come on down and our senior staff uh, that will be working at camp to come on up. We're going to have a prayer for you guys 
this will be the 48th summer of Camp Chioka. The, uh, if it wasn't the first theme, the, it was an early theme that said God still lives at Camp Chioka. Well, Camp Chioka still lives because of God, and we are very, very proud for that. Uh, this is, I'll sit right down, right down yonder, right down yonder, right down there. Um, they just naturally flock to me, so I got to, you know, make them go somewhere else. Um, uh, this is our senior staff. I'd like for our junior staff that will be working, y'all go ahead and stand up and uh, with them this summer, and uh, you can see who's going to be working this summer with your kids. We have, yeah, go ahead and give it up for them. Because they're going to be working with 850 kids over the next five weeks. So uh, that's about what we have registered. As of Friday, it was 825, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it's 850. We'll round up there. To give you some perspective, when we reopened in in 2009, there were 309 campers. So God has grown this thing exponentially, and he gets all the glory. And we're so proud of you guys, and uh, thank you for giving up your summer to be here. And already, I can just tell you, this is the last four or five days that I've spent with these guys uh, from all over the country, from Tennessee to Texas and Arkansas and Missouri and wherever else they're from. Uh, they have, uh, are just fantastic, great worshipers. Our singing will be even better today because they're here it's just a great, great group of kids that you will entrust your treasures with, and they take that seriously. So we want to pray a special prayer uh, over you guys. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the idea of camp. Even way back when, whenever you called your people together in an encampment, uh, thank you for uh, giving us places like that, not only just Chioka, but all, all throughout the whole uh, country and throughout the whole world where, where your people come together and people come to know you. So in a special way, I ask that you be with all of these staff, our senior staff and our junior staff that uh, will be working with our, with our campers, be with our campers, keep them safe, help them to see you and to know you in ways they've never known or seen you before. Thank you for everyone that has uh, put so much into making this happen for so many years, and we give you the glory for everything. And the church said, Amen. stand and we'll continue with some worship this morning. At the name of Jesus every knee shall bow At the name of Jesus every tongue confess At the name of Jesus every knee shall bow Every knee shall bow at his name There is no other Every time. 
Oh! 
Versus the spiritual, when we're just all at one, all physical and spiritual at one with each other, worshiping, and when we we're able to hear angelic voices as well as the voice of the Father speaking as clearly as we can hear each other singing right now, that's that's going to be an amazing time, and uh, something that we can try to imagine as we're worshiping, but. We know that we'll never fully realize it until that day happens, but it's nice to think forward and imagine it as we're worshiping and, uh, and just feel that closeness because the Father is here. He's singing to us, singing right back to us as we're lifting up praises to Him. He's saying, come to me, lift up your voices to me, um, you know, right here worshiping 
with us. And there's angelic voices singing, lifting up praises just as loudly as we are that we can't hear, but we try to imagine. When the night is falling and the day is done, I can hear
live in a world full of desperation. If you don't believe me, I recently heard a preacher say his fantasy was to spend the time in jail so he wouldn't have to worry about meals or anything else. <laughs> he said that as a joke. But you know, it really, really does tell you something about the world we live in. We're desperate to escape our problems. We're desperate to escape our addictions. We're desperate to escape the hurts of this world. We're desperate to escape the problems we face. The answer is in the cross. The only place to escape the desperation of this world is at the foot of the cross. You know, I often wonder in my own life why I wait so long to go to the cross. Why I try so hard to handle life on my own terms. Why I try so hard to find the answer in my own strength. Because the cross is always there. The cross begs for us to come to it. You know, I've come up with the answer in my own life. I'm just a little too selfish. Why does the world not want to hear the answer to life's problems? Because the world we live in, the desperate world we live in, is just a little bit too selfish. You know, if you go to the cross, or if you encourage someone else to go to the cross, you will be ridiculed. You'll be laughed at. Why do they believe in that? It's an uncomfortable thing sometimes to go to the cross because we have to get out of our own selfishness. I have to get out of my own selfishness to go to the cross. That's why we do this every Sunday. We do this every Sunday to remind, I do this every Sunday, to remind myself that the only way to escape the desperateness of this world is to go to the cross. The message of the cross in my life is that God always does what's best for eternity. I think that's what he told Jesus. This will be what's best for eternity. So when uh, my grandson was in the hospital, 300 miles away, God was always doing what was best for eternity. The outcome didn't matter. God was doing what was best for eternity. You know, that's the kind of faith we have to have and we have to represent in our lives so people can look at us and say, he's not desperate, he's at the cross. Pray with me. Father, for giving up your son for me, because you knew what it was best for my eternity. I thank, thank you that his body was broken 
for my eternal salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't ever know of an instance where anybody wanted to shed blood. But God let the blood of his son be shed because he always does what's best for eternity. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus' blood that cleans the dirty life I've lived. In Jesus' name.
Generosity has always been part of faith. You can't have faith without generosity, I don't think. The most generous gift of all is, of course, God's gift of his son to us to save us from our sins. I think it's hard sometimes for me to be generous with my money or my time because I stray a little too far away from the cross and get a little too wrapped up in this desperate world. So my challenge for all of us, for me especially, is this week to be just a little bit more generous, maybe a dollar more of my money, maybe just a minute more of my time, but to grow in my generosity toward God every day. Think about that as you pass the plate to the person next to you. How can you be more generous to them? Father, thank you for the blessings you give us. Thank you for blessing this church so much. Father, help us to stay close enough to the cross to always remember where the blessings come from. In Jesus' name, amen. struggled in prayer before I came up this morning and uh, to make sure that well, we always have some new history on the first Sunday of each month we take up a collection just to go. Our regular members who had problems, sickness, accidents, sudden difficulty that they, they can't handle on their own. It's nice having such help. <clears throat> but in my prayers, I was questioning whether you sometimes, as an audience, wonder what right do I have to stand up here and ask you to give extra? And I, and I, I really, with hesitation, but I want you to know that 
I've, I've never worked anywhere except with the church, and you know how rich they are. But we saved up because we wanted to be able to help with the Lord, so we got out of debt years ago. And we want you to know that what I'm asking you to do, we do every month and then on a regular basis. And we give at least 20% of our income and help every ministry of this church. I think maybe one I've got to get call up on. And a number of things like hospitals like St. Jude's and four things, four other things, and then our specials. Now, we don't have a lot of money. <laughs> if you know anything about preachers, you'd know that without me saying it. Uh, but when I ask you to help those in our congregation who are going through agony in a hospital maybe, a baby away from them and them having to make trips back and forth. We have babies that are sick. And incidentally, this is so on my own, so the elders may kill me uh, because we always make decisions together. But mothers, do not take six baby, sick babies to the nursery, please. I know it's hard for you but we don't need to share whatever they have with other babies. We need a sign-up so that the folk who work there won't, won't be the monsters. Did, did you second that? Yes, sir. Go ahead. <laughs> he was slow as molasses in January. <laughs> but this is that time of month, and what I've tried to get you to do and I appreciate so much what David said today, didn't you all? He just really helped me. But it's the first of the month, and all we want is everybody to be involved. If every one of us is involved, but those that are already uh, committed, we'll never have to run out of funds, okay? Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, the great joy of my heart, their hugs, their kisses, their love for each other. Truly, I understand why John the Apostle on his deathbed told his brothers, love one another, love one another. And Jesus had made the point that how the world can tell his disciples is how they care for one another and love one another. And I think that's been a big part of our congregation Thank you for every blessing, Father, that we have. And thank you for the Robison family, Father, that are under pressure all the time. Bless them with strength and bless our congregation to carry out your glory around the world for your worthy. In Jesus' name, with the help of the Spirit, we ask this. Amen.
church. Good morning. Test. Check. Good morning. We have got a great crowd here this morning. If you're a visitor with us today, welcome. We're so glad you're here. If you're a regular attender, we are very glad you're back. If you're watching online, thank you very much for tuning in. Today we are going to be continuing our series called Converge. The word converge is defined as the point in time when two lines intersect. And so as, as, as the, the creative team was praying and, and studying for what we wanted to talk about over the next coming weeks, what we really felt compelled to do was to emphasize how anybody living anywhere doing just about anything could live an extraordinary life despite how ordinary their context or their profession or their setting was. Yeah, that's right. I'm even talking to you. Your everyday, ordinary life can be extraordinary, and that's good news. I think the place in Scripture where that's most clearly obvious is in the book of Acts. And so we've been working through the really incredible stories in the book of Acts about how the Holy Spirit uses ordinary men to establish an extraordinary phenomenon, the church, and to connect people with the truth of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the equation. That's, that's the, the function of how your life can be extraordinary doing anything. When you, sir, or you, ma'am, are letting the Holy Spirit work within and through you to live out the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ impacting the lives around you for eternity. There is nothing ordinary about that. And I think in the busyness of the American culture and in the affluence of the American culture and in the materialism that is so pervasive in our society, it's, it's difficult to train our minds to be conditioned to being fulfilled by being conduits for the Holy Spirit to minister to people around us. And so part of, this, part of this series is all about you losing your affections for the earth and developing an affinity for the Lord Jesus Christ. To the degree you lose being entangled with the materialism and the junk right here on planet earth, 
and become totally consumed with being fulfilled through the Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ, your simple, ordinary life becomes extraordinary. Let me tell you about something extraordinary I got to do recently. Uh, a couple contacted me. They said, hey, Trent, would you do our wedding? And I was like, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm busy, so my availability is difficult. Uh, but if it's far enough in advance, you know, I think maybe I can do it. I said, you know, where is the wedding at? And they said, well, you know, the wedding, we're actually doing a beach wedding on Gulf Shores. And I was like, listen, I can definitely do the wedding. <laughs> and they were like, could you come stay with us for the week leading up to the wedding? And I'm like, I have nothing going on. I have nothing in my schedule that is pressing. So I'm one of these guys that really loves the beach. Man, what I really love is my family. And the beach affords me a really easy way to spend a whole lot of time with the people I love most in the world. And so we were leading up to the wedding, and we got there Sunday after service last week. And the beach was awesome. We had a couple of days of rain, but other than that, it was a really beautiful experience. And the wedding was on a Friday. And I've had the opportunity to participate in some weddings. Brittany and Trev, shout out. I'm not sure if you guys are here. Uh, and I love doing it because it's, it's, in ministry, one of the coolest phenomenons imaginable. Because you're literally joining two people in a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, creating something new right in that moment. So we got to do this ocean side. Now, what was really, really kind of scary is the wedding was taking place at 6.45, and at about 5.30, we get a torrential downpour. I mean, it just starts raining, and the skies get black, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, Lord, this is just not going to be cool. You know, we're going to have to do this wedding right here in the living room of this condo, which was nice, uh, but not, not best case scenario. And so we're kind of praying and, and hoping for the best. And about 10 minutes before the wedding was set to start and everybody was getting there, the, the skies begin to clear. And so we decided to go ahead with the ceremony, praying that no more rain would come through. And the sky, as the skies cleared, the sun had started to set. And the sunset after a storm is particularly beautiful. And so there was this red sky backdrop. And as we, as we started the ceremony with the bride and the groom right here in this moment, I look up to my right and there's a rainbow. And the weather was cool. There was a breeze blowing in from the ocean. There was a rainbow in the background. We finished the ceremony. And the coolest thing for me was after the wedding, it was, it was our last night there at the beach, and my wife and my kids and I were playing in the sand and we all had our nice clothes on. And so the game was to see who could get closest to the surf without getting wet. And our two-year-old, you know, he sits down like right in the middle of everything and he just gets soaked like the first attempt. And our other kids are playing and the rainbow was still there and it was a pink sunset sky with this cool surf like blowing in our faces. And the atmosphere was, if I could have scripted it, it was ideal. And I thought to myself... How can anyone doubt that there is a God? How could anyone be out there in that moment with me and look at that sunset in the sky with the rainbow and the marriage ceremony commemorating new life for that family and my kids playing in the surf and not think there is a God who is alive, who is the creator of all? And so I had a moment, and I'm, uh, I'm at a place in my life where I'm really trying to focus in on those moments. I'm calling them victory moments. 
those, he- those moments where literally it seems like heaven and earth collide. And I fully appreciate the majesty of God, and I have to admit there is a God, He is real, and He is alive. But there are those things in life that we go through that are so painfully grievous that I think it's not always so easy to admit that there's a God who loves me. There are things like sexual abuse, like physical abuse. There are things like neglect, poverty, divorce, abortion, infidelity. And when we're walking through the storms of those dark and difficult and desperate times, we look up and there's no rainbow. And there's no pink sunset and there's no surf blowing in our face. There are tears falling down our cheeks. And there's loneliness. And there's misery and there's despair. And I think then it's those things that the enemy would like to keep us focused on rather than the victory moments such as the one I described for you this morning with me and my family. And church, when something happens in life that is difficult to bear, that is so painful it brings you to your knees, it's easy to become bitter and resentful about those things. And if the enemy can get you focused on that bitterness and resentment rather than the victory and the beauty and the majesty of God, then he can get you to take the way of the world as opposed to the way of the cross. And so this morning I want to talk about what I believe is the main device that the enemy uses to get you to take the way of the world in contrast with the way of the cross, and that is by an unforgiving spirit. An unforgiving spirit. And when you go through one of those experiences that brings you to your knees and it's the cause of someone else's behavior and the pain inflicted on you has been very severe, it is easy to be unforgiving towards that individual. And so to start, I want to talk a little bit about unforgiveness. Now, my, my truth about forgiveness is that you need to forgive. Everybody needs to forgive. And that there is no sin committed on you that is so grievous that it cannot be forgiven. And, and I'm even including things in that list like sexual and physical abuse, neglect, abortion, divorce, poverty, an affair, all of the above. You church, you husband, you wife, you man, you woman do need to forgive. I'm reminded of the words of, of Nelson Mandela. He was a South African uh, anti-segregationist. And for his views on civil and social equality by race, he was imprisoned for 27 years. And so if anybody had a justifiable reason to be bitter and unforgiving towards another individual or another group of individuals, it'd be somebody like Nelson Mandela. And a comment that he makes that's useful to our discussion today goes like this. Friends, I knew as I was walking out of the prison following my release that I had to leave behind all the bitterness and resentment I felt towards my captors, or I would simply be moving from one prison cell to another. In Colossians 3.13, Paul encourages us to forgive. I'm reminded of a quote by Mark Twain, one of my favorites on forgiveness, hopefully one you'll consider throughout the week. 
Forgiveness is the fragrance, the violet leaves on the heel of the person that has crushed it. And so I want to get in a little bit to the nuts and bolts of forgiveness. And then I'm going to use a scriptural example. But the one thing that I think makes it really difficult to forgive people is because, quite frankly, lots of us are kidding ourselves. Lots of us are kidding ourselves. Well, Trent, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you a personal example. When I look in the mirror, I think I see somebody that you don't see, okay? I see a 6'4", 275-pound, chiseled Brad Pitt, okay? <laughs> Church, that was not a joke, right? <laughs> and, and so, as you can see, there is some distinction between how I view myself right? And how I really am. Okay. So what, what state I am in is, is a state of self-deception. That's a nice way of saying you're kidding yourself. Now, a friend of mine, Rob Turner, some of you know this guy, he's almost as buff as I am, okay? And he gave me a book by the Arbinger Institute called Leadership and Self-Deception. And they get this idea right. John Gottman talks about this. James Dobson talks about this. Lots of people in leadership, John Maxwell and Stephen Covey, have different ways of defining kidding yourself. The Arbinger Institute calls this self-deception. That white on blue is a little bit difficult to see. I apologize. But here's what the art of deception is like. The art of self-deception involves first a self-betrayal. So it's 2 a.m. It's in the Langhofer household and there's a cry in the night. And this always happens at my house. We got a five, a three, and a two. There is always a two o'clock in the morning cry. And so then there are two different roads that Trent, the leader of the house, can follow. Okay? One is the honorable leader role where Trent gets his lazy tail out of bed, figures out which child is crying, and goes to meet the meat of that child. That's the true, authentic, leadership-designed answer to the cry in the night. And I feel like as a result of me being created in the image of God... And as a result of God setting eternity in my heart, I know that's what I should do. But there is a much easier route that Trent could follow, and that is the route that betrays what Trent knows he should do. And what I know I should do is I should get my lazy self out of bed and attend to the need of my child and let my wife, who slaves away all day with the kids and cooking for me, which is like cooking for five, a break. But what do I start telling myself? I don't, I don't have to do that if I just let them go. You know, they're going to fall asleep. And so I decide to stay in bed. Well, then what happens? I get up the next morning, and I start to view myself as the 6'4", 270-pound Brad Pitt that I believe myself to be. You know what? It's okay that I didn't get up because I'm a good father. I'm a guy who works from 9 to 5, I encourage people, I'm in ministry, I'm at home, and I don't really do a lot around the house, but you know, I have a smile on my face, and I'm not hurting anybody, and I'm not drinking or doing drugs, I'm a good guy, I am a great guy, and you know who the problem is, it's that lazy woman I'm married to, this is what happens then in most of our minds, no. now look, I'm, I'm giving you the way that we, that we fall into an unforgiving spirit. And I want to be candid with you. When I am unforgiving towards the people that are closest to me, this is what it sounds like in my own mind. And so some of that is humorous, but some of it is shamefully reality for me. 
And so here I am, I've betrayed myself by not doing what I know I should do, what I know to be right, what I'm mandated to do as the high priest of my home. And so I start to look at Trent really as a 6'4", 270 chiseled Brad Pitt, which is a, it's laughable. And then, because of that obvious mistake in, in self-assessment, to justify it a little bit farther, I have to start to look at the people that I love the most as though they're the problem and not me. So all the behavior that someone else is doing now is unfavorable. They can't win for losing. If they say something nice, it was an accident. If they're doing something nice, it's likely because there's an ulterior motive attached. Well, I know the only reason you're making cookies tonight is because you want to go out with the girls all weekend to Shreveport, right? Instead of just looking at it in the moment like, wow, what a loving wife I have such that she would make me cookies. And I don't need any cookies, Kirsten, if you're watching this. That's not the... Uh, most important priority on my list, as you can see. So what happens after all this viewing of Trent in a favorable way and viewing of others in an unfavorable way is I become then self-deceived where I've bought into the, the, the fallacy that I'm a six-foot-four, 270-pound Brad Pitt. And now guess what happens to anybody who disagrees with that? You're crazy. There's a childhood story called The Emperor with No Clothes. At least I think that's the story, Okay. And so it's this really incredible illustration of how your view can become the thing that keeps everybody else crazy and you as the only person right in your life. There's this king. He loves riches. He's materialistic. Sounds like you, doesn't it? And these cobblers come into town and they say, King, we have this fabric that no one can see except only those people whose eyes are particularly gifted at seeing true, authentic beauty. So what do they do? They play into this king's materialism, and he's like, well, look, that, that best describes me. So if you would, would you cobblers please make some, some tailors, would you tailors make some beautiful robes for me to wear so that I can parade my beauty all around town? So these, cobblers start, uh, these tailors start tailoring away. And the king sends one of his trusted servants to view the creation of the tailors. The, servants, the servant gets there, and guess what? He can't see the cloth. Why? Because it doesn't exist. Just like my view of me being a 270-pound, 6-foot-4 Brad Pitt doesn't exist. But what does the guy say to the tailors who are making the clothes? Oh, my goodness. These are the most beautiful clothes I've ever seen. And so he goes back to the king. He's like, king, you're not going to believe this. These tailors... Oh, beyond your wildest dreams, these guys are gifted. You've got to come check this out. The king gets there. He cannot see a thing. But you know what he says? Oh, man, this is so incredibly beautiful. So what do they do? They say, king, pay us all this money, and we'll continue to make these beautiful robes, and pretty soon they'll be ready for you to put on. So to make the long story short, the king pays, he dresses up, and he parades around town in nothing but his underwear. And all of the townspeople know that something doesn't add up, but nobody's really wanting to say, king, why are you running around naked? And so a little child looks up and he says, Mommy, in the earshot, within earshot of the emperor, why does the emperor not have any clothes on? Now the emperor is taken aback and the whole town gets silent and they would have stoned that person that called their game out, except it was an innocent child. But if you're an adult and you tell me, Trent, hey, you're not really a Brad Pitt, then I'm tempted to do what the king would have done had that not been a child and throw you in jail or start 
chastising you or making you the bad guy. Why? Because if you can't see that I'm really a Brad Pitt, then you're either blind or crazy. And I do feel like that uh, to a degree, okay? <laughs> so, so this is my conjecture, though, ladies and gentlemen, that to the degree you are self-deceived, that you're kidding yourself about how good you are, it's going to be very difficult for you to forgive people. Why? Because you've elevated yourself to the position of God and because everybody else on the earth is crazy and they're not really deserving of your time or effort anyway. So you go on living your life as though the world revolves around you and that nothing matters except what you want or what you want to do or when you want to do it. And if something gets in the way, then it's just a bother and those people are crazy idiots and you don't care about them and forget them and I'm moving on. And then... Sunday rolls around, and you walk through the church building. And you sit down in your pew, and you're like, oh, yes, Jesus loves me, and I love Jesus. Don't sit too close to me. And no, I'm not taking a picture. Can't you see I'm Brad Pitt? And that's our attitude. And to some degree, you are deceiving yourself, everybody. To some degree, the enemy has you trapped in this idea, this fantasy, that you're a whole lot better than really you are. And I think maybe, you know, those of us who have come out of addiction have been able to use our addiction to see who we are much more clearly than those that haven't struggled with those kinds of things. And I think in Christ, that's why our struggles become the greatest blessings because they're the biggest gut checks for me to realize I'm not God. I'm not Brad Pitt. I'm me. I'm broken and I'm flawed. And without a Savior to lead me through this life, I'm going to fall off a cliff or cause my own destruction and live continually in misery because that's about what I, Trent, not speaking for you, but me, am really worth. So let's talk real quick about what forgiveness is not. Because if you've been hurt very grievously, then, then I think it's important to understand what, what kind of needs to happen Forgiveness is not condoning the behavior that has caused you pain. You can still see, church, that an action was wrong, and you can still choose to forgive someone. Forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness does not mean that the offender should not be held responsible. Forgiveness just means you relinquish that responsibility to somebody who's capable of dealing with it justly. This is really important stuff. I hope you just heard what I said. Forgiveness is not forgetting. There are two words in the Old Testament that describe forgiveness. Salak and Nassah. Spell like NASA. Not indicative of space travel. That's where your mind went. Okay, just was kidding there. Okay. Salak, God only can do. Nassah, God and man, implies the carrying of a burden you're obligated to carry. So if I had to live in ancient Israelite times... A person of my build, 6'4", 270, that looks like Brad Pitt, would be obligated to carry the water from the well back to the household. Because I'm best equipped to do it physically, right? Boom! Okay. I'm going to stop. That's too much. You don't care for that. So I could look at that burden two ways. I could think, you know, I get to see all my friends as I walk to the well. I get to see the beautiful scenery of the landscape in which we live. I get to provide a service for my family that's essential to their life, and I get a great workout. Or I could be miserable, bah humbug, I hate the cold, I hate the heat, the water's much heavier to carry on my way back, and I hate all these people that I have to walk by, and I could be miserable. The choice would be mine, but the implication is that I can't forget about the fact that I have to bear the water. 
And one way or another, church, you have got to bear the pain that has been afflicted upon you. And so my hope and prayer through this message is that you'll take an ordinary life defined by pain and struggle and transform it into an extraordinary life defined by joy, happiness, and success. I think the other thing that's important to mention here is forgiveness does not necessarily imply reconciling or the restoring of a relationship. If, if someone is physically abusing you or sexually abusing you, you need to get away from that individual. And you need to let me know so that I can have some of my other friends that are six foot four and 270 pounds lay hands on that individual, okay? Because at WFR, we still practice the laying on of hands. Can I get an amen? Somebody out there, come on. Okay, okay, okay. But seriously, I do want to pray for you. And I'm trying to make light a very, very difficult thing. And it's tough in church to talk about people forgiving when they've been traumatized through any kind of abuse. And if someone has physically or sexually abused you, then that doesn't necessarily imply you have to reconcile with that individual. That might not be healthy. It might not be useful, and I don't know that it's what God is requiring you to do. So let's talk about the way of the cross. Let's talk about uh, what forgiveness really is. How does it happen? What does it mean if I'm living my life out as such a way as to be defined as a forgiving life? Well, in forgiveness, I have a very accurate view of Trent. I look in the mirror, and I fully understand who Trent is. And I hope that I understand Trent better than you do because I have to deal with me all the time, not just a couple of times a week when I'm speaking. And I know how many times I fail and I come up short and I'm rude and I'm inconsiderate and I'm unappreciative. And when I come into a context where somebody harms me, it's first most useful for me to consider, you know what, I'm not perfect myself. And I think the second thing that's really important is that I have the view of others that the Lord Jesus Christ has. And it's imperative that I mention Luke 23, 34, and I hope you memorize this. As Jesus is being crucified, he says to the crowd, those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the same Jesus that we say we want to live our lives to mimic. We want to replicate this guy's life. And as he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive those people who are crucifying me. So what does that mean? Jesus looks at people past their faults and sees their brokenness. And I thank God that when the Lord Jesus Christ looked at me, he didn't see somebody that was too far gone. Instead, he saw somebody worth loving and worth saving and worth trying to make something out of. And I pray that he continues to do that more and more every day. And I hope that I'm able to look at people in my life with those same kinds of eyes, past the fault and past the flaw and to the need. And if I were going to be candid with you, it's some of the people that have hurt me most in life that I've been able to look back and reflect upon and think, dear Lord, how miserable and, and sorrowful that individual had to have been to have inflicted those things upon me. And so what then is the next necessary step? If I'm looking at people like that, it's almost as though forgiveness within me happens automatically. I'm going to talk about what exactly that is in a little bit. But now it's not so much as Trent needs to relinquish the sense of having been offended or harmed by this individual. As much as it is now, Trent is beginning to pray that the Lord can forgive these individuals. I don't hold this sin to their charge, Lord. Can you forgive them? 
And so that means what? I have obviously chosen to bear the burden of that pain, but not just to bear it. And I think that's where so many of us want to stop in forgiveness. Okay, I love Jesus. I got an accurate view of who I am. Now I'm going to decide to just bear this. But bearing the pain will only be doable for a temporary length of time. Why? Because the bearing of pain is something physical. It's something carnal. It's something that you're going to try to do to your, with your own strength. So what do you need to do? You need to bear the pain as an act of surrender and an act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I'm reminded of my pain, I think I'm doing this bearing of this pain in obedience to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my disciple, if you, if you, if anybody wants to be my disciple, pick up your burden of pain, shoulder your cross, deny yourself every day and follow me. And so when I am bearing my pain, I am shouldering my cross and I am doing that which the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded me to do. Thus, the bearing of my pain can become an act of worship. And when I can let the bearing of my pain be an act of worship, this is huge. This is worth your time. No, maybe it's not. Then my everyday, mundane, ordinary, painful life that doesn't make sense and feels purposeless becomes majestic because it's those things in my life that harm me, that frustrate me, that hurt me, that cause me to feel anger that I can then surrender out of obedience to God and choose to treat as an act of worship. And then it really is my difficulties that make me strong. All right, Trent, that sounds cool, but has anybody really ever done that? I mean, come on. Well, let's talk about somebody that's done that. It's found in the book of Acts. I think I got my text up here. I'm going to go Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. After that, I'm going to talk about what exactly forgiveness is and how this particular individual did it. Acts 7, verses 51 through 60. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears... Okay, let me give you some context. I'm sorry. So what's happening here, if you'll remember last week, Ananias and Sapphira withheld some of the tithe they had pledged to God from the church. And they were struck dead. So if you fast forward the tape, just a couple of chapters, there is a guy named Stephen who starts preaching a sermon. And the people who are listening are self-deceived. Because they're hearing what Stephen says and they're realizing this is truth. But to admit that what Stephen is saying is true, then would necessarily mean that they have to deal with the implications of what he's saying. And that's what makes a sermon that I'm preaching to you, like this one, so difficult to hear. Because if you admit to some degree you really are self-deceived, then you have to deal with the implications of what that self-deception means in your life. So Stephen finds himself in a similar position. He's speaking to a crowd, and what he's saying is true. And they're challenged by it, but they don't want to deal. They're not, they're not wanting to go there. So what do they do? They build themselves up in their own mind. They start to talk bad about him. Then he challenges them, and that's where we'll pick up the story. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. You stiff necked people. This is Stephen speaking to the crowd. In other words, I think he's saying, you stiff-necked people, you're self-deceived. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears. They don't want to hear the truth. Why? They're self-deceived. The truth means they have to deal. Don't expect people to be able to hear truth and automatically be open to it. Prepare for war, yet still share truth, church. They covered their ears. They yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. You talk about somebody that had a justifiable cause to be unforgiving. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young young man named Saul. This is actually the Apostle Paul, who we're going to read about later in Acts chapter 9. While they were stoning him, listen to this, church. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when he fell to his knees and he cries out, and this is his last breath. Now imagine you were being stoned and you had one last thing you could say. You know what he says? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me talk about Stephen for just a second. This is a guy who really took the way of the cross. Stephen is a guy who really took the way of the cross. You say, Trent, how did Stephen take the way of the cross? Here's one way. When you're justified at taking the way of the world and being unforgiving, and you still choose to forgive, that's taking the way of the cross. When it'd be within what everyone would consider just for you to hold someone's sin against them and you say, because the Lord Jesus Christ did not hold my sins against me, then neither do I hold the sins that that person has committed to me against me against them. I don't lay those sins to their charge. Then you, sir, and you, ma'am, are taking the way of the cross. But you know what most of us struggle with? We struggle with relinquishing that sense of having been offended even when we're not justified in being unforgiven. Even when it's something trivial and we withhold forgiveness, that's where the struggle for most of us is. And, and at the beginning of this message, I almost thought about taking out grievous sins like traumas and, and serious pains and just emphasize the necessity of forgiving the day-to-day struggles because the big stuff is... is, is, is not even in the realm of what most of us are are ready to even deal with because we're so self-deceived and so unable to forgive even the smallest of offenses. Stephen is justified in his holding of unforgiveness should he choose to withhold it, and yet he still decided to forgive. That's the way of the cross. I think the other thing that's necessary to to be aware of if you're going to choose to take the way of the cross is the truth that God is usually most visible to us when we're suffering greatest for him. When Stephen's being stoned, he looks up and what does he see? He sees the glory of God. Right there in his moment of greatest need, guess who is closest to him? It's his father, it's his Abba Father, who we sang about earlier. 
And sometimes, church, you've got to go through the fire to become as pure as God intends for you to be. So don't fear. Don't fear the valleys. Don't fear doing the work. Don't fear really going there because God is there. And he'll be with you through whatever he calls you to. If God leads you to it, he'll see you through it. And I think in church it's, it's necessary to remember, I mentioned this in Sunday school, I'll mention it again, this is a Rick Warren quote. I'm not sure if he's the guy who, who came up with it first. But God is usually overwhelmingly more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. And so those pains that the enemy would like to have inflicted on us that keep us focused on them, the pain, rather than the victory moments, rather than the moments of overcoming, the moments of majesty, that if we can choose to surrender that pain over to God, in the moment of that surrender, when we confront the pain and we got to do the work to move forward, that's when God is near. And some of us have been resisting doing the unforgiveness that we've needed because we've been worried that the God who said he'll never leave us or forsake us is going to leave us in, in that time of need. But it's in those times of need, church, that in my life and in the scriptures we see clearly God's strength will be most powerful within you. The end of the way of the cross, ironically enough, is paradise. Of all the people in the story I just read about Stephen, Stephen is in the best position to be fulfilled. Isn't that crazy? I mean, Trent, this guy was just being stoned. How is it that you're saying this guy's in the best position to be fulfilled than any of these other guys? Because he takes the way of the cross. And the way of the cross ends in paradise. Any other way, no matter what way it is, no matter what version of truth we try and justify ourselves to be living in, it ends in misery. And some of you that have been living in a, a state of unforgiveness towards your spouse or somebody in your past or somebody at this church or somebody at your job or your kids or whomever have been living in misery, but the fact that you're here makes it confusing because you're thinking, well, I'm in church, but I'm still not feeling it. Well, maybe this is what God would have you change. Maybe it's unforgiveness that's keeping your life overwhelmingly ordinary. And maybe forgiveness needs to occur so that you can sense the extraordinary power of God rising up in you day in and day out. Let me read to you a poem, and I'm going to conclude here. This was written by a guy named Kent Keith. He was a sophomore at Harvard University. And the poem is called The Paradoxical Commandments. I'm going to conclude with this. People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you'll win false friends and true enemies. Try to succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs, but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you do help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best, and you'll, ha and you'll give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world your best anyway. Do some self-reflection right here as we conclude. Have you been given your best? If you haven't, that's why your life is completely ordinary. 
If there's a need that you have in your life, if you need to give more than just mediocre, if you need to forgive, if you need to be baptized into Christ, whatever the need that you have in your life is, our praise team is going to sing, and I invite you, let today be the start of something extraordinary in your life. Lay your burdens down.